Yo-ho, I'm Damien Roos. Today, high-pressure washing, calming nerves before a race, dual-sided power meters, and more. If you got a question about cycling, I got you covered. But if I can't find the answer, it doesn't exist. This is your Cycling Questions Answer. Question. I live in an apartment block and I have nowhere to clean my bike. I'd rather not get into the shower with it, so my only other option is to pay my local bike shop to wash it or take it to a car wash and use the high pressure hose. Am I doing more harm than good? Cleaning your bike is essential maintenance that anyone can do on a regular basis to keep it running better for longer and also helping to uncover any potential problems. We've all heard the horror stories about pressure washing that washes away bearing grease, pushes dirt into them, strips paint, punches holes into tires and wrecks marriages. But where's the truth in all this? For many of us, especially those who live in cities, cleaning our bike can be tough. With limited space, many of us have no other option but to head to the car wash or the local service station and fire up the old high pressure hose. Sure, you could use the bathtub or shower, but do so at your own risk. A quick search online and you'll find videos of people power hosing a bottom bracket at full blast for minutes on end, only to find minimal water ingress. This tells me that if done correctly, using the jet wash may not be the best way to clean a bike, but it's definitely an option to consider. The truth is that for us roadies, our bikes are rarely going to get near the level of dirty as mountain bikers or cyclocross riders, for example. So a trip to the car wash every now and then is really no problem. Just don't do it after every ride. Here's what you'll need if you decide to give it a go. If you plan on going after a ride, put some degreaser in an old water bottle along with an old toothbrush in your jersey pocket and keep a clean cloth for drying after and a small bottle of chain lube. And don't forget some loose change for the hose. Before you switch on the hose, apply the greaser to the cogs, chain and chain rings using the nozzle of the water spray bottle. Give it five minutes to work its magic and then scrub it off with the toothbrush, making sure that you get in between the cogs and all the other dirty nooks and crannies. Now comes the hosing. Don't get too close. Aiming for the wheels and the frame is fine, but keep your distance. Staying well away from the headset, hubs, and bottom bracket. Make sure to clean off the degreaser from the cassette and chain, but again, be careful not to go too close. After washing, take your bike for a short ride to keep the parts moving. This should prevent any water from pooling, especially beneath the bearings. Any water left sitting around can lead to rust. Turn your bike over. Make sure that the water escapes from anywhere that it might be sitting. Check once more and wipe away any water with a cloth. Lube the moving parts and you're ready to go. Personally, I think that pressure washing can get grit out of a bike chain and it's great for cleaning any parts of a bike that are located away from any bearing. So if you have access to this tool, why not use it? After riding for a few years, I've recently taken the plunge into competitive racing. I was wondering if you had any pre-race preparation tips that might ease my nerves on the day. All bike races have had a first time and it can be a daunting experience. Sure, you've put in the training hours, you've eaten well, but none of this matters if you don't prepare and get it right on the day. You need to control the things you're able to control. And you name it, I have probably left it behind at some point. I've forgotten everything from helmets and shoes and biddens and food. I've even forgotten a front wheel at some point. It's not that I'm not being careful in the preparation. It's just that if I'm packing on the morning of a race, then I'm in a rush and I do have nerves and things get left behind. 
to make a thorough checklist days in advance and pack accordingly. The night before, make sure that all you need to do on the day is get there safely and start racing. This means having absolutely everything prepared, clean and working correctly. This may sound like overkill if it's just a local club race, but definitely when you're starting this, you'll have the time because you'll be thinking about it. So I would take the effort to go through all these procedures so you do feel fresh on that day, even if it's a small race. And this means that when you arrive at the race, you won't have to fix a puncher or you won't have to fill your water bottles or pack your gels and energy bars. So if you just reduce the stress of doing these small things, then that can definitely add up and help you. In the evening before, don't eat anything that you wouldn't normally do. So this means no mountains of rice and pasta, please. Obviously, you should aim for a good night's sleep, an easier task for some than others. Don't let this affect you too much, though. Physiologically, you will still be able to perform the way you would with a good night's sleep. My advice, like your evening meal, is to not do anything you wouldn't normally do. Being prepared for anything on your bike to break at a race is very important. It might be a good idea to bring a toolbox for any unforeseen mechanicals while warming up. Try to take spare wheels, tires, tubes, a pump, pre-prepared race food, and any other spare parts you need. Some extra clothes might be a good idea if the weather forecast is unclear. Make sure that you've had a big meal three to four hours before the race, but nothing too heavy. Making sure that you stay hydrated throughout the day with water is essential here too. Switching to carb and electrolyte drink during your warm-up before the race, it's easy to overeat when you're nervous. So one hour before, have something light and high GI. Get there early, check out the course. If the race is close to home, it would be a good idea to do a recon a few days before, even the day before. There's nothing worse than nasty surprises in roundabouts, off-corner cambers and street furniture. Rushing around before a race studying it would just be wasting precious time and energy for crits, ride the course as much as you can, try to pick a few different lines through each of the corners and re-ride with any weird or sketchy segments as much as possible. Sometimes it's possible to check the course on Strava just to get a general idea of how many, what kind of climbs there are. This can be very useful for road races because you can not only see where the climbs are and how long and how steep they are, but also a long list of people who've ridden them. This will often show you how long it will actually take and what power you need to hold. Now for the warm-up, take a look at the start of any big race and you'll notice some riders with headphones on a turbo trainer and others might be chatting with friends or family. It's easy to tell who is getting into the zone. Take your trainer, find somewhere quiet, not too far from the start. Timing how long it takes to get to the start is a good idea. Get there too early and you'll cool down. Get there too late and you're in a bad position. Try to get in a good warm-up with some short sprints or intervals thrown in. The idea is that you let your legs experience race pace before it actually begins. The more intense the race will be from the start, the more important it is to get a quality warm-up in. Don't forget to pee before you start. Also bring a roll of toilet paper. Nothing like getting to a morning race and finding the bathroom is out of paper. Most nervous anxiety and energy is caused by a fear of failure or perhaps crashing. By having a positive mental attitude, you are more likely to achieve what you've set out to achieve. Using positive self-talk has proven effective in maintaining a good attitude and building confidence. Accepting nerves as normal can be used in your favor as well. Tell yourself butterflies are your body's way of getting ready for a race instead of perceiving them as a bad thing. Comparing yourself to others or with previous races is also a surefire way of messing you up mentally. You want to measure your success based on your goals 
and your performance. At the end of the day, if you've done everything possible to give yourself the opportunity to have success, then there's not much more you can do. Nerves are a completely normal part of racing. Do I need a dual-sided power meter? So I'm looking for a power meter, and I've heard that the benefits of a dual-sided power meter include the ability to account for power imbalances between legs. This is relevant to me because I've had some single leg injuries and suspect that my power might not be consistent between legs, but this had me thinking, do I even need a dual-sided power meter? By doubling one leg's power, one-sided power meters are making the obvious assumption that you are producing the same power from both legs, but perfect 50-50 power distribution is extremely uncommon. Most of us have an imbalance, some larger than others. In fact, imbalances as large as low 40s one leg, high 50s on the other leg aren't uncommon. For many amateur riders, this imbalance doesn't matter as much as cheaper single-sided systems like the 4i or stages because they're just more than enough when it comes to training with power. For the people who are more serious about their training though, effort is not the only important variable, but technique too. To measure the power that comes from both legs, you're going to be looking at a dual-sided power meter. Despite the claims of many power meter companies, there are actually a few that can measure the two legs separately. To truly isolate the right and left leg, you really need two power meters in a single system. And when we're thinking about the true left and right power meters, we're really only thinking about Garmin pedals, power tap pedals, any other pedals that have left and right, and Info Crank, and also the Pioneer Crank. Rotor's new one and Into Power System could also be added to this list. The advantage of these systems is that the data they offer for analysis purposes, they can define exactly how much power is being lost by exerting power in the wrong direction, pressing down as the pedal moves back up. This usually requires third-party software such as WKO4 to present this metric. Knowing this information could give riders an insight into how efficient their pedaling stroke is. What it can't do, some argue, is teach a rider how to pedal better. So does accuracy matter? I still say consistency is the key. Accuracy is becoming a thing as it should for a technical and expensive tool, which I do agree on, but we have to make do with the current products in the marketplace. Some argue that it doesn't really matter if it's off by 30 or even 50 watts as long as it's consistently off. You still train to make gains on that figure and see when training is and isn't working. This means choosing and sticking with the same power meter throughout the season is the most important thing at the moment. Some say that a power meter is only as good as its last manual zero. This means that making sure a system has a straightforward manual zero process could be worth more than a 100% accuracy claim. This process of resetting the torque sensors on each side to adjust for temperature and pressure is essential unless you have a system that does it automatically for you, which loses up to 30 watts. Inaccurate data can have some huge mental effect on a rider too. Imagine that you have an FCP of 300 and it's reading 250. This is a big number. Comparing yourself to others can only make this problem worse. Justin Heinkel, the product manager for PowerTap, sums this up. One leg systems give us a false sense of accuracy. A simple imbalance of 3% becomes 6% when you're measuring from one side and doubling it. And 6% of 300 watts is nearly 20 watts. I'd be pretty upset if my power meter was off by 6%. If you have decided to invest in a power meter, the truth is that a consistent one is a thousand times better than a heart rate monitor or speedometer. Team Sky, you only use left-only power meters until recently. Sponsorship deal, I imagine. 
For most people, even at the top level for training and racing on a single-sided power meter is probably fine. However, it's worth noting that Sky have access to far more accurate equipment for testing, which is arguably where accuracy is most important. Also, there have been sneaky rumors that a few of the cranks from the very beginning with their stages relationship had dual power meters in them. Expert biomechanics believe that optimum pedaling demonstrates a left-right power balance of 50-50, achieving a totally symmetrical and harmonious workload and alleviating the risk of injury or damage from incorrect patterns of movement. But it remains to be demonstrated by science whether asymmetry is less efficient from a performance point of view, or in other words, if symmetry is more efficient. And it is the rule rather than the exception that the asymmetry will vary with power, with cadence and with fatigue. But most riders don't really do much with power meters other than training FTP. So these differences in asymmetry are almost always unimportant. And left and right has been around now for a few years. We've had the software that can analyze them and actually nothing has really come of it. I haven't seen any scientific studies that are changing the way people are training and I haven't seen anyone using this data for any real effect in the training ecosystem. Bottom line, almost everyone who thinks that a single-sided power meter will fit their needs is right. Almost everyone who thinks that a single-sided power meter won't fit their needs is right. What's different is that each group has a different need. What's the deal with taking ibuprofen and cycling? I've heard some people say that athletes take ibuprofen before training to help them work out more intensely and prevent muscle soreness post-training. Is there any science to this claim? You might have heard that athletes taking ibuprofen or other anti-inflammatory drugs before a hard effort or in the middle of a race to help them work harder and heat off muscle soreness post-workout or race. On the surface, this seems like an interesting thing to do, a little unethical, I guess, at times, especially during multi-stage races or blocks of hard training sessions. The science is telling us now that this is the science is telling us now that this is not only an exercise in futility, but that it might actually be causing intestinal damage, specifically where cells lining the intestines are traumatized and start to leak. Researchers in a Dutch study published in 2012 recruited nine healthy active men and had them visit the university's human performance lab four times. On the first two occasions, the men rested for an hour before visits, having taken a recommended adult dose of ibuprofen. The night before and just before the lab visit, for the other two visits, instead of resting, the men were made to do a one brisk hour stationary bike, as well as taking the recommended dosage of the drug. At the end of each rest or ride, blood was taken to check whether the men's small intestines were leaking. It found that blood levels of a protein indicating intestinal leakage were, in fact, much higher when the men combined bike riding with ibuprofen than during other experimental conditions. Notably, the protein levels remained elevated several hours after exercise and ibuprofen. A 2006 study also concluded that ibuprofen use compared to non-use by athletes competing in a 160-kilometer race did not alter muscle damage or soreness and was related to elevated indicators of exotemia and inflammation. And that's not all. Some research has shown that taking ibuprofen before exercise may increase the risk of musculoskeletal injuries and delay healing by impairing the synthesis of collagen, a key component of muscles, bones, and connective tissues. Ibuprofen may also reduce the response of muscle to exercise and decrease bone formation, thus lessening some of the benefits of exercise. 
It may be too early to say whether these risks, other than gastrointestinal bleeding and ulcers, would prove to be significant, but it's definitely something to keep in mind. If this is something that is done on a regular basis, then it might be cause for concern as intestinal integrity might be compromised, where small amounts of bacteria and digestive enzymes could leak regularly into the bloodstream. According to Dr. David C. Newman, himself an ultramarathon runner and the one who conducted the 2006 study, the belief that taking anti-inflammatory drugs helps you train harder and more effectively is simply not true. There is no scientifically valid reason to use ibuprofen before exercise and many reasons to avoid it. Does a powder weight ratio matter in criterium racing? I'm a bigger rider and I'm wondering if my powder weight ratio plays a big role in flat criterium racing. There is no doubt that powder weight is a determining factor on longer climbs and certainly important in short, steep climbs. When going uphill, gravity is the overwhelming limiting factor on the speed you're riding at. When it comes to flat riding though, we can confidently say that powder weight ratio is less of a factor. Power is definitely essential here and muscle mass will only serve to increase this power, but equally so are aerodynamics. Wind resistance plays a much bigger role in how quickly you go than how many kilos you're carrying. Bigger, heavier riders who have perfected an aero position will be able to cope much better on the flats than someone focused too much on keeping weight down and in turn losing power. Powder weight ratio is just one of many components making up a successful rider. If you live in a flat area where most races are the same and are finishing in sprints, your training should reflect this, focusing on other aspects of fitness such as sprint power, as this has far more direct application in the type of races you are riding. There is a range of watts per kilo that show that you could be a good sprinter, but what matters more is max power, sustained 10 to 30 second power and drag your CDA. Pete Morris, the big 200 pound crit racer from Team Cliff Bar focuses his early training on being able to put out 400 watts for 20 minutes. He thinks this is a good baseline for him. This then brings him to do 500 watts plus in 20 to 30 second bursts. What he says as the hardest you will ever go in a crit. So it's basically getting used to lots of time at very hard paces. Crits are all about putting out big numbers. What's important to remember here is that specific races, this is flat ones, require power. Carrying more weight means being successful in specific areas such as sprints. Lower weight could mean being a better all-rounder or a good domestic, but certainly not a winner in a flat race. <laughs> 